0: Welcome to the Derek Izzy Show. I'm the aforementioned host, Mr. Izzy. Are you ready for today's show? Before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about one of our show sponsors, Audible. Get your free trial with Audible. Book downloads to any mobile device. Don't have enough time to read a book? Listen to your book. Using Audible. You can get a free trial... Go to audibletrial.com slash Derek. That's my name, D-E-R-E-K, audibletrial.com slash Derek for your free trial. That will get you 30 days free and one free book download, audibletrial.com slash Derek. As you know, Uber is a sponsor of the show. You can get your Uber discount, 5LX9E. And now we have Uber's competition Lyft as a sponsor of the show. That's L Y F T. Lyft is a taxi app just like Uber, except with Lyft, it's more about ride sharing and making new friends. Lyft has a built in tip app if you'd like to tip your driver. And the overall drivers that you will run into through Lyft, it's more of a friendly, friendly group of people. Uber is built on speed. Having as many drivers out there as possible get you from one place to the next extremely quickly. And then Lyft is more about making a new friend, getting you where you need to go, and enjoying the ride along the way. Today's podcast comes out on April 1st, and no, that is not an April Fool's joke, but since it is April 1st, I'd like to say happy birthday to Teresa Jensen, a fan of the show listening out in Corona, California. So, Teresa... Happy birthday, and thank you for listening to the show and telling your friends and family about it. And now, on to the topic of today's podcast. Those of you who have followed followed my career around the country uh, know that I spent some years in Wyoming. In Wyoming, the coal industry is pretty big. In the neighboring state of Colorado, the coal industry was huge. At its peak in 1910, the coal mining industry in Colorado employed over 15,000 people, which was about 10% of the employed workers in the state. One of these companies was a company called Colorado Fuel and Iron. It was the largest coal operator in the West. They had over 7,000 employees and controlled over 71,000 acres of coal land. Now you probably haven't heard of that company, but in 1902 the company was purchased by John D. Rockefeller, and I'm sure you know who he is. Now typically the way these coal mining companies work is they have the mine sites, and then the workers actually have a camp around the site where they they live, whether they have, uh, back then it was tents, in more recent days they have Small housing set up, trailers, things like that, so that the workers can actually live in the same area where they work, instead of having to commute back and forth. Now back in the early 1900s, there were a lot of jobs in this country that were very dangerous, and coal mining was no exception to that. The industry overall was noted for a constant risk of explosion, suffocation, collapsing mine walls. I mean, it was just a very, very dangerous profession. Um, To give you an historical quote, in 1912, the death rate in Colorado's mines was seven for every 1,000 employees. It gives you an idea of how dangerous it was if they expect seven out of every 1,000 employees to die on the job site. Now, Colorado had some strict laws when it came to mine regulation and work regulations and safety efforts but those safety policies were not always followed the story i have for you today is an example of a culmination of many things it was fueled by frustration from the workers with their working conditions being unsafe or unjust frustration with the corporation that they worked for, and the corporation's frustration dealing with unionized employees. Colorado miners had repeatedly attempted to unionize since the state's first strike back in 1883. The Western Federation of Miners organized primarily hard rock miners in the gold and silver camps during the 1890s, but beginning in 1900, the United Mine Workers began organizing coal miners in the western states, which included Colorado. They decided to focus on CF&I because of the company's harsh management tactics under the conservative and distant Rockefellers and other investors. Now, the coal companies aren't going to just let workers strike. They hired strikebreakers. These strikebreakers came mainly from Mexico and southern and eastern Europe, The workers in the mines came from all over the world. Different nationalities all mixed together working in the coal mines. These particular coal miners had their grievances dealt with in 1913. Their demands included recognition of the union as their bargaining agent, a 10% wage increase, enforcement of the 8-hour workday law, payment for dead work, which was things like uh, laying track, timbering, handling impurities. They wanted the weight checkmen elected by the workers and the right to use any store and choose their boarding houses and doctors. They also fought for strict enforcement of Colorado laws, specifically the mine safety rules that were not being followed. So now we have... About 11,000 miners going on strike. In order to combat this strike, CF and I evicted the strikers from their homes. They were all living in shacks that were owned by CF and I, so they were immediately evicted. The miners moved with their families to canvas tent colonies scattered around the nearby hills, but they continued to strike. The next step in the strike was for the National Guard to show up. The miners thought the Guard was on their side, but on the morning of April 20th, three guardsmen appeared at the camp ordering the release of a man they claimed was being held against his will. This request prompted the camp leader, Louis Ticus, to meet with a local militia commander at the train station in Ludlow Village, which was a half mile from the colony. What I'm going to give to you next was an eyewitness account to what happened. This was a young electrical engineer named Godfrey Irwin. Here is his account of what happened next. On the day of the Ludlow Battle, a chum and myself left the house of Reverend J.O. Ferris, the minister with whom I boarded in Trinidad, for a long tramp through the hills. We walked 14 miles, intending to take the Colorado and Southern Railway "'back to Trinidad from Ludlow Station. "'We were going down a trail on the mountainside above the tent city at Ludlow "'when my chum pulled my sleeve, and at the same instant we heard shooting. "'The militia were coming out of Hastings Canyon and firing as they came. "'We lay flat behind a rock, and after a few minutes I raised my hat aloft on a stick. "'Instantly bullets came in our direction. "'One penetrated my hat.' The militiamen must have been watching the hillside through glasses and thought my old hat betrayed the whereabouts of a sharpshooter of the miners. Then came the killing of Louis Tikus, the Greek leader of the strikers. We saw the militiamen parley outside the tent city, and a few minutes later, Tikus came out to meet them. We watched them talking. Suddenly, an officer raised his rifle, gripping the barrel, and felled Tekus with the butt. Tekas fell face downward. As he lay there, we saw the militiamen fall back. Then they aimed their rifles and deliberately fired them into the unconscious man's body. It was the first murder I had ever seen, for it was a murder and nothing less. Then the miners ran about in the tent colony, and women and children scuttled for safety in the pits, which afterward trapped them. We watched from our rock shelter while the militia dragged up their machine guns and poured a murderous fire into the arroyo from a height by Water Tank Hill above the Ludlow Depot. Then came the firing of the tents. I am positive that by no possible chance could they have been set ablaze accidentally. The militiamen were thick about the northwest corner of the colony where the fire started, and we could see distinctly from our lofty observation place what looked like a blazing torch waved in the midst of militia a few seconds before the general conflagration swept through the place. What followed, everybody knows. Sickened by what we had seen, we took a freight back into Trinidad. The town buzzed with indignation. To explain in large part the sympathies of even the best people in the section with the miners, it must be said that there is good evidence that many of the so-called militiamen are only gunmen and thugs wearing the uniform to give them a show of authority. They are the toughest lot I ever saw. No one can legally enlist in the Colorado State Militia till he has been a year in the state, and many of the militiamen admitted to me they had been drafted in by a Denver detective agency. Lieutenant Linderfelt boasted that he was going to lick the miners or wipe them off the earth. In Trinidad, the miners never gave any trouble. It was not till the militia came into town that the trouble began. This face-off between the miners and the militiamen raged for 14 hours, during which the miners' tent colony was pelted with machine gun fire and ultimately torched by the state militia. A number of people were killed. Among them, two women and 11 children who suffocated in a pit they had dug under their tent. The deaths were blamed on John D. Rockefeller. For years, he would struggle to redress the situation and strengthen the Rockefeller's social conscience in the process. Contemporary voices provide a rare window into the divide that separated the Rockefellers from some of the harsh realities tied to their business decisions. They powerfully illustrate the clashing viewpoints that were at the heart of the crisis and shed light on Rockefeller's ultimate transformation. The official call to go on strike, September 17th, 1913. All mine workers are hereby notified that a strike of the coal miners and coke oven workers in Colorado will begin on Tuesday, September 23rd, 1913. We are striking for improved conditions, better wages, and union recognition. We are sure to win. One federal mediator, before the massacre happened, says, Theoretically, perhaps, the case of having nothing to do in this world... But work ought to have made these men of many tongues as happy and contented as the managers claim to have a house assigned to you to live in, to have a store furnished you by your employer where you are to buy of him such foodstuffs as he has at a price he fixes, to have churches, schools, and public halls free for you to use for any purpose except to discuss politics, religion, trade unionism, or industrial conditions, in other words, to have everything handed down to you from the top, to be prohibited from having any thought, voice, or care in anything in life but work, and to be assisted in this by gunmen, whose function it was principally, to see that you did not talk labor conditions with any other man who might accidentally know your language. This was the contented, happy, prosperous condition out of which this strike grew." That men have rebelled grows out of the fact that they are men. Here's an excerpt from Rockefeller's letter to Lamont Bowers. Lamont Bowers was the CF&I vice president at the time. In an excerpt from Rockefeller's letter to him on December 8, 1913, says, You are fighting a good fight, which is not only in the interest of your own company, but of other companies of Colorado and of the business interests of the entire country, and of the laboring classes quite as much. I feel hopeful the worst is over and that the situation will improve daily. Take care of yourself, and as soon as it possible, get a little let up and rest. On April 6th, 1914, 14 days before the massacre, Rockefeller says, These men have not expressed any dissatisfaction with their conditions. The records show that the conditions have been admirable. A strike has been imposed upon the company from the outside. There is just one thing that can be done to settle this strike, and that is to unionize the camps, and our interest in labor is so profound, and we believe so sincerely that the interest demands that the camps shall be open camps, that we expect to stand by the officers at any cost. And you will do that if it costs all your property and kills all your employees? That was the congressional rebuttal. And Rockefeller says, It is a great principle. Fourteen days later, a massacre ensued. In response to this, the leaders of organized labor in Colorado issued a call to arms, urging union members to acquire all the arms and ammunition legally available, and a large-scale guerrilla war ensued, lasting ten days. In Trinidad, Colorado, officials openly distributed arms and ammunition to strikers at union headquarters. Between 700 and 1,000 strikers attacked mine after mine, driving off or killing the guards and setting fire to the buildings. At least 50 people, including those at Ludlow, were killed in 10 days of fighting against mine guards and hundreds of militia reinforcements rushed back into the strike zone. The fighting ended only when U.S. President Woodrow Wilson sent in federal troops. The troops, who reported directly to Washington, D.C., disarmed both sides Displacing and often arresting the militia in the process. The conflict, called the Colorado Coalfield War, produced a death toll of approximately 75 people. The United Mine Workers Association finally ran out of money and called off the strike on December 10, 1914. In the end, the strikers failed to obtain their demands, the union did not obtain recognition, and many striking workers were replaced by new workers. Over 400 strikers were arrested, 332 of whom were indicted for murder. Only one man, John R. Lawson, leader of the strike, was convicted of murder, and the verdict was eventually overturned by the Colorado Supreme Court. 22 National Guardsmen, including 10 officers, were court-martialed. All were acquitted, except Lieutenant Linderfelt, who was found guilty of assault for his attack on Louis Tickus. However, he was only given a light reprimand. The last survivor of this massacre in Ludlow, Colorado, died of a stroke at the age of 94 on June 28, 2007. She was 18 months old when the massacre occurred. Her name, Mary McCleary. McCleary's parents and her two brothers narrowly escaped death when the conductor of the train that brought the militia to the tent colony stopped the train to shield the family and others trying to flee. But Mary had been left behind. A 16-year-old boy heard her screams, gathered her up into his coat, and then ran into the woods. Mary and the boy were found several days later still hiding. McCleary's daughter said family members did not speak of the massacre. On January 16, 2009, the site where the Ludlow Tent Colony stood was designated a historical landmark. And now you know the story of the Ludlow Massacre. I want to thank everyone for listening. Visit our new sponsor, Audible. Get your free book download. Go to audibletrial.com Derek. audibletrial.com Derek for your free audiobook download. When I first spoke about Audible... I let everyone know that I downloaded Adam Carolla's book, President Me, which is basically a summary of how Adam Carolla would run things if he was president. And it was really enjoyable. So if you use your Audible trial to download that book, shoot me an email. Let me know what you thought. When you need a ride, use one of our taxi services. We've got Lyft and Uber. And if it's your first time, you can use our special codes to get free rides. With Uber, your first ride is free. If you use 5LX9E, first ride is free up to $20. With Lyft, your first ride is free up to $10. And the code for Lyft getting your first ride free is Derek605503. That's Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503. Until the next show, thanks for listening. Good day.